Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today on Future Express, we're going to talk a bit more about Robin Hanson's new book, The Age of M. Okay, so this is a new type of episode. We realize that we have been putting up very few podcasts as of late. And the reason is because the normal format that we do is extremely work intensive in terms of preparation and editing, but we don't want to completely abandon that format. So what we've done is create a new format that's going to be a little more casual and a little bit less in work intensive for us to produce. Right. So we're experimenting with these new Future Express episodes, and we want you to let us know you know what you think of them, because we want to make sure that uh, what we're doing is what you guys want to hear. But the idea here is that we're going to do less editing, so you'll probably hear more ums and pauses, but that uh, we will also be covering multiple topics in many of these shows, because we'll talk about kind of whatever's on our mind this week, instead of the normal process where we like really intensely research one topic and then stick to that throughout the whole episode. Right. It's going to be a little bit more of a loose conversation between us where we'll sort of go on tangents and uh, wander into different territory. As a result, we may not know uh, everything we need to know about the issues that come up. So if we don't know something, we're just going to say we don't know it and and promise to look it up for a future episode. Uh, The idea being that we're just going to try to keep moving and getting content out to you guys. And Right. We're hoping the upside of this is that more episodes get out more quickly. And we're still going to do those heavily researched... um, uh, single topic episodes and interview episodes that we've been doing, uh, we'll, bust, we'll just be doing them a little less frequently, more like once a month or every two months. And in the meantime, we're trying to get one of these uh, shorter express episodes out more frequently than that, more like every week or thereabouts. We'll see. Okay. We're so, not making promises, but yes. these, are, these are the general goals. So anyway, that's just uh, a little bit of preview. So this uh, l- lighter, um, more conversational episode is going to be uh, talking about the new Robin Hanson book, Age of M. Yeah, today we're actually are going to be focused mostly on this one topic. It's uh, a big topic. Yeah. Now, you might be wondering, why are we talking about this again? We just did a whole episode on this. And the reason is, that was an interview where our goal was not so much to, you know, try to challenge Robin or, or push him a ton, which is what we often do like to do with our guests, but more just to try to get his ideas out and into a clear format because we kind of felt like they weren't that accessible anywhere on the internet. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the re- reaction to the book has just been sort of visceral and not very um, reasoned. So we wanted to give him a chance to just get his ideas out in a clear fashion. And we think we did that. And actually, I want to stop now and say if you haven't listened to that episode yet, number 71, um, I would stop and and go and listen to it because it's a primer for what we're going to talk about uh, in this episode. It's pretty much a prerequisite. Unle- yeah, unless you've read the book to uh, to listen to at least that uh, episode and get a sense of of what he's what he's suggesting in this really pretty monumental uh, work of futurism. Right, and uh, you know, I on other podcasts that I won't mention. Uh, sometimes <laughs> you, you know. People have gotten into, you know, heated arguments with him and and really haven't gotten past his initial premises. So we just wanted to kind of accept his premises and then get to the interesting stuff quickly. The meat, yeah. Exactly. Uh, But today we're going to sort of say more like, what do we think? So so since this is going to be partially a review, let's just start with, is the book worth reading? And I would say, yes, it's a fascinating book for a variety of reasons. It's got a ton of interesting, challenging ideas if you like these futurist topics. However, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to everyone. Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking too. I recommend it heartily to a subset of people and not to everyone. It's a pretty dense and difficult read. And you have to, if you're not already a fan of Robin's writing, it will be, uh, I think, pretty challenging just to get into it. Um, and I am a fan of his, his writing, but I find it, I find it dense. Um, yeah. And even Robin admits in the book that he hasn't attempted to make the writing style super accessible. So that wasn't even a goal with the book. It's pretty much just a delivery mechanism for these ideas. It almost seems like the goal is the opposite of that because I mean, Robin is a master of deploying 
really bizarre jargon um, from near and far to I mean M's it's it's the 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 title itself age of M refers to his shorthand for a whole brain emulation which he calls an M which if you're not familiar with his writing you wouldn't even necessarily know right I mean there's just a ton of jargon and if you are somebody like us who's read a lot of the futurism that's out there or if you are looking to get like inspired uh, by a new vision for a science fiction future or something like that I heartily recommend this book I think this will really do a lot for you uh, but if you're a casual reader who doesn't want to fight through jargon... Just listen to our last episode. I think it's going to do a lot better for you, I'll be honest. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but I personally, I am a fan of mm-hmm. the book. So I was too. Uh, and we're really only talking about writing style and ex- accessibility here. Uh, now, I want to talk about one uh, response that I got to our last episode uh, via Twitter. Right. Uh, which came from a listener whose name is Alberto Ferrero. And it I don't want to talk so much about exactly what he said or what our discussion was, but more just the general concepts that he brought up. Uh, so, you know, he mentioned, uh, first of all, the idea of a post-scarcity society. Right, uh, which is something we've talked about here on the podcast. It's before. something we've talked about. It's something I know a lot of our listeners are are interested in. And he talked about, you know, that this, isn't this a post-scarcity future? Doesn't it transcend capitalism? You know, why are the M's acting like workaholics? You know, why is everything seem sort of like it's following the same economic logic of today and so on? These were some, uh, you know, ideas that I had wanted to address on last week's episode that uh, didn't quite come up. So I want to address them now. So first of all, the term post-scarcity, which we haven't talked about for a while on this podcast, just to be clear, is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that like you can't really ever be completely post-scarcity because some things will always remain scarce in fact i think we did an episode about those things uh many episodes back right and as an example of things i've forgotten i don't remember the number of the episode but i'll look it up and put it in the show notes right but we're gonna keep moving because that's the idea of today see in a normal podcast we would have stopped here but we're not gonna do that you can search for uh what will remain scarce in the future i think that's what it was called but uh you know things that remain scarce are things like status um things like you know computation itself Mm -hmm. things like real estate that's the main one that robin really seems to focus on in the book yeah is that m's are basically working for whatever it costs to run them uh which we assume is not very much but, uh, you know, his idea is that any amount of scarcity seems to be enough to power a capitalist-like society. And maybe that is showing the economist's bias toward assuming that all future worlds will be capitalistic in nature. Um, but it is an assumption of the book that you have to you have to accept to move forward. That's the thing is that, you know, it's in a way it's hard to challenge a lot of Robin's visions because he's qualified everything so thoroughly and he stated his assumptions pretty clearly mm. that, you know, most of his book is of the phrase, well, if X, then Y. And, you know, you right. And it's usually like we ordinarily expect X and if X in the future, then Y. Right. So right. Uh, unless you question how ordinary his his initial uh, statement is, uh, which we'll get to some of that later, um, you're usually along for the ride, or at least that was my feeling as I was reading it. Right, but re- returning to this idea of, of post-scarcity for a second, um, it's still, I think, that term has some meaning, even though it, it's maybe impossible to be completely post-scarcity because, you know, you can be, you know, for all intents and purposes, post-scarcity, or I guess you could say you could be post-material scarcity, for example. So, for example, humans could have all of the, you know, food and water and energy and entertainment and things of that nature that they could ever possibly want, and even if they're still competing for status and right. so forth. positional goods. Uh, that's still right. a pretty different world than today, mm-hmm. so I still think there's something to talk about here. And a, a virtual reality world where M's live could potentially be designed to be largely uh, uh, post-scarcity in that, in that respect, right? Where it wouldn't cost any more... I mean, there's some marginal cost to run the things, and then once they're running, it's, everything else is a little bit basically free. Well, yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's a couple things here. So, first of all, the M's themselves, right, don't have any material needs other than the computation needed to run them. Right. Right? Because And, you know, some way, I guess they need to be entertained or kept amused, depending on what 
their preferences are. But uh, let's talk about humans for a second in this world, because in, in Robin's vision, right. the humans basically are living in a post-scarcity utopia. Right, right. They're sort of the owners of this M society, uh, is the way he describes it. And he doesn't spend a lot of time on humanity, uh, because it's no longer the driving force on Earth. But uh, he does outline what he thinks people will be doing, and they're basically hanging out, uh, enjoying the fruits of M's labor. Right, and their investments have skyrocketed through the roof, and he thinks the M's will leave them alone. And, you know, assuming that the human governments uh, do a reasonably good job of sharing the wealth, then that actually is a pretty good future, at least for the duration of this time period that he presents of two years or so. Right, which it might be extremely short. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, like he pointed out on, on last week's episode, you know, you got to worry about then what happens after that. But uh, now... But the M's themselves, I think this was the focus of the point that Alberto brought up. Um, it seems like, oh, well, they're living in VR, so aren't they, you know, they, they don't have any needs. But as, as you already mentioned, Ted, right, they, they still need the computation to run them. Right. Right. Now, the cost of running them is way lower than the cost to, say, sustain a, a meat-based human. But right. the, that cost difference pretty much evaporates when you make tons and tons of M's. Well, that's why Robin thinks there'll be such a huge explosion in the population of M's, right? Right. Is that they'll be cheap enough to run, I mean, much cheaper to run than the equivalent human being would be to pay wages uh, during that period of time while they're working. And as a result, you'll just get many, many, many more M's um, than we currently have people. Right. So I, assuming that people have a lot of demand for these M's, which seems a pretty reasonable assumption, uh, and assuming that they are made for the purpose of doing work, that's their entire reason for existing. That's why yeah. certain people were copied. That's why they were trained. That's what they're tweaked for. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the M's essentially, I mean, they're, they may be conscious beings, potentially, or beings deserving of respect, but in a way, you can think of them as a tool that's made with a purpose, right? Right, right, right. That's what I was just thinking, is it might be helpful to think of them as just regular old AI, uh, right? Like, just some sort of software that's running, that's doing tasks for its human owner. Right. Now, of course, again, Robin's book focuses on the experience and world of M. So, there's a lot of personification, or you might even say anthropomorphism, with regard to the M's in his book. Um because they're copied from human minds, it's easy to say, well, they're going to have human-like experiences, but actually that's something we can't really know, right? That's like outside of the realm of, of what's knowable. So maybe they're having human-like experiences, maybe not, but that's a useful model for predicting their behavior. So we use that. And uh, that's different from saying that they are, you know, human beings in a capitalist system. They're almost just like, you know, another way to think of them is that they're like software agents in a, in a game, uh, that has sort of capitalistic rules, and that's what's keeping the game going. Right. Because, yeah. If you had, like, you know, traditional AI virtual agents, right, or assistants, right, that were constantly serving you, which is a common futurist vision, right, I don't think you would worry that those agents were workaholics. Right. And, and you would say, like, why are they working so hard? Why? And you wouldn't say that that's not post-scarcity. If yeah. you were, That's the point I was because making. Because from the point of view of the humans that right. are benefiting from the work of those agents, it is still post-scarcity. Exactly. Um, with, again, the caveat that it's not truly post-scarcity. It's just post-scarcity enough to be right. it's a world of abundance. It's abundant in, yeah. in Diamandis' uh, phrase. Sure. So, so yeah, I mean, it, the idea being that uh, our current sort of Malthusian setup of our capitalist world wouldn't necessarily be the most intelligent uh, organization principle for the humans in the age of M. But uh, again, uh, Hansen is really just talking about the organization of the M world itself inside the machine. And um, since they do need computer resources to run, it does stand to reason that one thing that might happen uh, is that uh, that scarcity would become the overwhelmingly important scarcity in the economy, and the economy would run um, more or less like a capitalist economy um, where that's the scarcity that's driving things. Right. Uh, now, none of this really happens the way that Robin describes unless uh, the M's and the humans fail to 
limit copying, limit, right. fail to limit pre- reproduction. Because right. if you know a bunch, a coalition of M's and maybe M's and humans got together and said, you know, we're only going to allow so many M copies to be made per year, right? Or so many to exist at any one moment. Or if even more radically, they said something like, you know, um, M's can't have copies made uh, without the approval of some additional body or something like that. There's some permitting process, right? for example. Uh, then in that world, I think uh, everybody, including the M's, are richer per capita. You mean wages are higher? Uh, right, their wages would be higher. Right, right, right. Because it's hard to predict whether they'd be richer since their economy might not grow as fast. That's true. Right. And I mean, in terms of wages. Right. Not so their wages well. would be higher for M's. Therefore, there'd be fewer things that M's would plausibly substitute for humans because they wouldn't necessarily be cheaper than a human. Right. If you had to go through an expensive or long permitting process to get an M copy made to do a job, then that's an additional cost. Then you may as well just hire a human in some cases, perhaps. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I think that Robin's assumption that that kind of coordination isn't going to happen is probably a pretty good one uh, for reasons that we talked about last episode. So I'm not going to totally go over those again. Right. Uh, it's also a good baseline, right? Which is something that he defended. I, I, I bought that defense that uh, if you are going to start with a baseline scenario, it should be the scenario in which no large scale coordination happens. And then you can calculate what large scale coordination might do to change that baseline right. scenario. But, uh, I think there are reasons why in this world there might be a better chance of large-scale coordination than there has been in the past or in like previous human history. Right. Uh, and I, I actually raised some of these points to, to Robin when I was reading an early copy of his book. Uh, and so, so my thinking was uh, because the M's are made from very few source humans, right? So you have a limited number of personality types at play here right right? he estimates somewhere between a dozen and a thousand or thereabouts right which is a pretty big range actually right and i think the closer you are to a dozen right uh the more it becomes pretty plausible that say like you know 12 different personalities if that's all that's around right and remember too that they're immortal effectively right they don't go through the normal birth death cycle that kind of tends to shake things up, you know, generation after generation in terms of human history. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, you have these like immortal 12 personalities. I feel like they could capture, uh, you know, the governance of society in such a way, maybe where they can enforce these kinds of laws uh, to benefit themselves. Right. And it would be potentially in their interest to do so because, again, they could all make more money. It would essentially ra- be a, ra- raise their wages in the short term. Right? Yeah, they'd be like a guild or something, a, right. a protectionist guild, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the other thing, too, is that, you know, we kind of dismissed last episode the idea that there would be some kind of uh, surveillance that would keep track of these things. And I still think that that's pretty unlikely to be enforced completely. But I do think, you know, if they're concentrated in... Well, it could be an arms race, right? It's like, yeah. you, can, you know, they mean, you may never win that race, but that doesn't mean you can't play the game and, and have an impact. Well, it could be, you know, one of these things like the drug war that's like a costly battle that's not that successful. Right. But that, you know, kind of stems the tide a little bit. Right, or like um, uh, cryptography is another example. of. I mean, that's one that... A, a costly yeah. battle that occasionally stems the tide for brief periods of time, right? Right. Only to have the the floodgates uh, overrun and then the game starts over. Although, you know, surveillance technology will be better in the future. So, you know, it, it's hard to say how that arms race tips. Well, and it's fundamentally easier to perform surveillance in a machine world than the physical world. There's just a lot fewer holes, right? I would think so, yeah. I mean, I again, it depends how things are architected right right um so so yeah that's all i really wanted to to say about that which is that like you know i i can certainly imagine a situation where uh the m's coordinate you know for their own benefit in this way i mean in a way this seems like it holds back m society from taking over in, in as complete a, a way 
Yeah, you're you're trying to you're making a potential value judgment. Like, is this no, I'm better? Just, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to play out the consequence. What is the consequence of better uh, better coordination among the M's? Well, the thing about this is it does mean probably slower progress, right? Because yeah, you, you can't just like fewer, cop- fewer yeah. M's working on all these problems. Yeah, so I mean that's maybe not a good outcome. I mean, even though uh, I guess the M's would be better off from some sort of perspective that says they should get a you know a higher minimum wage, right? Uh, overall, the world's not necessarily better off uh, because of progress moving slower. Mm-hmm. But then again, maybe you want progress to move slower if, given the fact that you know what's on the other side of all this progress is highly unpredictable. Maybe we want a more there's slow that, onset. And there's also yeah. giving culture a chance to catch up to the changes that progress inevitably makes. Exactly. Right? Yeah, which uh, could potentially be good long term. It's really hard to suss out when that's when that's better and when it's not. But yeah, one thing to think about with this uh, whole age of M concept is that emulated brains are sort of like the cheapest imaginable way to expand the human population, right? Mm-hmm. So all of the goods and worries that come with expanded population, you know, more brains thinking about hard problems, but also more mouths to feed either literally or figuratively, uh, they increase with the M population in the same way. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I sort of touched upon value judgments there for a second. Maybe now we should pose the question. And and by the way, I just want to stress, we don't necessarily fully accept that Robin's vision is likely. And and neither does Robin, honestly. Like Robin stresses that he's very unsure. His confidence, if I remember correctly from the book, was something like uh, 30% that will have some relevance to to the uh, world as it actually shows up and 10% minimum relevance, you know, which is, I think, a pretty low um, bar to cross. And I, I believe he will cross that bar. I, I'm, I'm on board for that, for that much confidence. Sure. And what I really liked about this book was just um, that unlike many works of futurism that I read, it's internally consistent Right. If you buy its premises. Now, exactly. I didn't buy every premise, so I didn't buy every conclusion, but I appreciated that I could pretty much trace from each premise to its conclusion relatively well. Uh, every once in a while, my, my head started to spin, but as far as my understand, my cognitive abilities were keeping up, I was able to, uh, to, to see the logical consistency in it. And I think that makes it worth talking about on its own because... It's, um, you know, we can always change an assumption and then talk about how we think that changes the result. Um, but at least it's a, a self-consistent set of, of ideas. Yeah, and I think it's an important self-consistent set of ideas for any futurist to be aware of as, you know, one possible avenue the future could take. Right. And we'll get into maybe questioning the core assumptions in a second, yeah. but assuming that the future happens as he describes... Do we like it? Is this a world we'd want to live in? Right, right. And that's something that we, we touched on in the interview, which is that, you know, Robin himself has said this is not uh, a world that he's advocating for. This is a world that he expects based on his best, you know, assumptions and guesses based on uh, uh, the, the the most ordinary science that he could and find. And he's like hyper rigorous about avoiding any value judgments, but we're going to make them now because right. that's... Because well, that's our prerogative as exactly. readers and, and reviewers of this thing. And I, you know, I found myself revolting as somebody who maybe, um, Robin would say, tends a bit more toward forager values than farmer values. <laughs> um, that is, I, I, I tend to value... Liberal leisure. rather than conservative yeah, is the maybe, translation roughly. Maybe liberal rather than conservative. Um, uh, I tend to value leisure maybe over work and uh, creativity over obedience, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, so to me, this seemed like kind of like a yuppie hell (laughs) where like endlessly working conformist, um, you know, humans who sort of, you know, remind me of... You're talking about the M's, but they're human-ish. Human-ish, human-ish software programs uh, that sort of remind me of of the yuppies uh, that I know in my life. endlessly procreate and become the majority of the human race and are, uh, or I suppose they're not technically part of the human race, but the majority of intelligent creatures on earth and um, end up sort of directing priorities for our civilization. And that is a little bit terrifying to me, actually. (laughs) 
Well, um, I, you know, I don't. I initially had some negative response to it. And I got to say that my my feelings about his future have gotten a lot more positive the more I've thought about it and the more I've understood it. Oh, good. Yeah, because, maybe you can because again, assuage my fears. I, I will be, you know, maybe I'll be scanned. Who knows, right? But And, and there is, of course, different ideas of identity. But I'm sort of conceiving of myself as being one of these humans in retirement. And again, this does basically mean a you know, a retired post-scarcity future where if I can manage to have any halfway decent investments, I will get fabulously wealthy in a very short span. Obviously, that doesn't sound so bad. And then if I try to think of the M's, then from a utilitarian perspective, the way that Robin has painted it, they are very happy doing what they're doing. So maybe they are hyper workaholic uh, people that, you know, strive to... Uh, just do their jobs around the clock. Uh, but I don't know if I have a problem with that, if they're subjectively happy. Sure. And I, yeah, and I completely agree. Uh, you know, uh, one criticism that Robin um, brings up when, when people sort of talk about this sort of thing with him is like, well, you know, the vast majority of lives before the industrial revolution were, you know, subsistence level and very hardworking. And are you saying they weren't lives worth living. And of course, I'm not saying that. I think M lives, I think he shows pretty uh, convincingly that M lives would be worth living on some level. And there are a great many of them. So from a utilitarian point of point of view, you could say that that's actually a major win. You have lives that are worth living and you have a great number of them. Right. And they have no pain, which I can't stress this enough. Now, there, there is the possibility of sort of virtual hell which we've talked about on the podcast. Uh, and I, I think that exists on the margins as a frightening uh, way that things could go occasionally in certain situations. Right. But I think on the whole, this is a world without physical pain for these creatures. And that's pretty amazing. Right. He expects that you can get all of the benefits simply by selecting the right people to scan. And that you won't need to enslave them or torture them or otherwise cause them pain in order to get work out of them. And therefore it just won't be something that, you know, resources are wasted on doing. You know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad world. Right. I don't think it's a bad world. And I think it's arguably... It's just different from my values. Yeah. I think it's arguably better than the alternatives, right? Because the alternative... Let's go ahead and talk about, you know, Robin's most important assumption, which is that we get right. to human-level AI through whole-brain emulation right. and First, not through not, right. hard-coded AI, that just gets better and better until eventually it can right, do these sorts of jobs. Right, what some people call AGI sometimes, right? Uh, artificial general intelligence. Well, I don't know if... I feel like whole brain emulation also falls under just a pathway to AGI. Okay. Well, maybe... I, I, I thought I'd heard that as uh, meaning like the software. Okay, well, we, we'll pathway. use that shorthand anyway, um, for today. We'll say M's or AGI. That's fine. Just, right, right. just so people know what we're talking about. Sure. So to, to talk about the two paths. Yeah. So I think that, you know, in the AGI path... Right. Uh, you know, it's potentially very dangerous because you have a very similar set of results, but the creatures that are doing the work are right. not at all analogous to humans, even slightly. Right. And we've talked about this on previous podcasts. They're going to be aliens, real life aliens. They're going to be intelligent, but different from us in fundamental ways. And the M's already seem pretty alien as Robin describes them in this book. And we've got to imagine that the AGI version would be like, or much, much more alien even than the M's are. Much stranger, much harder for us to uh, understand, would share less of our values, if any of them, which is a huge concern. And they'd be less likely to see themselves as continuous with us, which I think is really dangerous for the future of humanity, where M's are likely to see us as their forebears, AGI may not. Right. In any meaningful way. Um, so one thing that's interesting that Ar- uh, Robin argues is that uh, we don't kill old people today, even though it would be actually pretty easy to do that and take their stuff. We don't because we have social norms against it, but also because the same institutions that mm-hmm. protect our wealth and protect our safety protect the wealth and safety of old people. And the same exact thing could happen with M's, which would be a pretty good defense against the M's deciding that, you know, serving humans is sort of a waste of time for them. (laughs) Um, Right. But it would be hard to make that argument about a really complex web of, you know, interlocking AGI agents. Right. 
you know, again, imagine a future where we don't have a, an overnight intelligence explosion, which is another really core assumption of Robin's book. Like he's assuming no intelligence explosion, which is something that he feels strongly about. So, so again, let's assume more of a slow, soft takeoff to this stuff mm-hmm. and that you just have these smart agents um, that are talking to each other, that are running the world economy, that are doing most of the jobs, but they're not based upon a human brain. Right. Um, they're not, they're maybe conscious, maybe not. Who knows? We probably don't necessarily give them rights reflexively, or maybe we do depending on how human they seem. But even if they appear human, that doesn't mean that under the surface they're remotely human, right? Because just some programmer made Again, them. Again, that's outside of what we can know, right? Yeah, so yeah. so we have these beings and, and they're going to have, there's going to be many, many copies of those beings and they're going to have a very complicated web of interactions that's going to determine the future. And that's going to be, I think, much harder to predict than the world that Robin has painted. Right, and like Nick Bostrom in his book, Superintelligence, basically tries to come up with a way to say it's okay and fails to do so, right? I mean, that's essentially what that book... Well, that book is very focused on uh, the, the the intelligence explosion outcome, although that book is pretty thorough. It goes through like a lot of the ways things could go, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, yes, you run into all of those problems that Nick Bostrom lays out. Uh, I think, I mean, you still potentially run into them into in Robin Hanson's world. You'd run into them eventually, I think, one way or another. Right. But uh, I it seems maybe not as bad. And so so that's that's how kind of how I feel about the future. I feel like, you know, it it at first you're going to it it's sort of repulsive if you have these liberal quote unquote forger values, but right. then actually I think on closer examination, it's kind of not that bad. Well, and another thing that uh the sort of forager farmer dichotomy that he uses to frame this stuff really brings out is that, you know, there's a pretty wide variety of human societies that have thrived and existed already. And it doesn't seem like the values of the M world are really that radically different from, you know, farmer societies that existed, you know, 2000 years ago, um, maybe coupled with uh, some of the values of the current uh, industrial society as well. Um, And so I think it's reasonable to assume that we will find people uh, to be the sources of these M's that that will actually find these uh, this culture that he describes, if it comes to pass, to be uh, an amenable place to live. Um, right now, let's uh, on this even point, if it's not so much the place for you and I, we we would prefer to be in the human utopian playground, <laughs> like making podcasts and having all of our real work done for us by. Uh, robots. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I would hate being an M if if the work I was doing was exciting, you know, and I get a virtual reality vacation every now and then. I don't know. I mean, that might be fine. That's true. But I, I mean, and also, like, let's talk You're about more of a farmer than I am. I think, John. Maybe. Uh, maybe. I, I I don't get up early. Uh, uh, so not, not in us, that sense. Neither of us are larks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but let's talk about. Uh, Maybe Scott Alexander's review now. So sure. So yeah, uh, this on, is a blog that you on, guys should check out. Slate Star Codex is the name of the blog. Yeah. Uh, this guy Scott Alexander does really good writing on many topics, including future, future, and uh, rationality type stuff that uh, our listeners might be interested in. But he recently did a pretty long uh, review with several sections of the book in which he said he liked it, and then kind of nitpicked at some various things. Um, but I specifically want to talk about his idea that the M's will sort of lose their humanity very quickly, he posits. Right, sort of be optimized away from their human traits. Right, because, you know, Robin talks about how there will be some sorts of tweaks that could, you know, make the M's into better workers, say virtual stimulants, things of that nature, although he doesn't go get very detailed about it. And he does talk about how they'll... But, he, you know, he doesn't talk about, say making them happier. Like he doesn't talk about like engineering their reward centers really ever in the book. And that right. maybe it, is an oversight, which Scott Alexander points out. He doesn't seem to think that stuff is going to be possible right away. Right. I mean, I, I don't know that he made an explicit statement about that, but he talks in general a lot about the brain being kind of a black box and spaghetti code and just notoriously difficult to understand. So I think he's intentionally limiting 
the tweaks that he thinks are possible to like things we can do now with drugs, for example. But there are things that we could do now, you know, if they put, you know, electrodes in your brain and stuff and stimulate certain areas that will, you know, cause pleasure sensations and stuff, things that aren't very sophisticated because again, we can do them now and they certainly would be easier in code and certainly with a better understanding of the brain than we have now. Right. So I think, you know, even with the, the black box model generally in place, you can still imagine like, you know, the best possible suite of drugs and, you know, brain stimulation techniques. And you could potentially make these M's not slaves, but, you know, you could very much direct their behavior so that like every time they do their job well, they get, you know, a burst of uh, feel good uh, you know, chemicals right. or, or virtual chemicals in this case. Right. Or you could induce guilt when they're not working hard or yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, and of course you could engineer out, uh, things like a desire for leisure potentially, or like a desire for love and sex and relationships, right? You right. Could- we can even select for a lot of those things because already within the realm of, you know, human experience, we have asexual people, we have people who are workaholics, we have people who are you know, uh, have find social interaction difficult and would prefer to be left alone. You know, I mean... Right, you're doing tweaks on the one side and then you're doing essentially selective breeding on the other side. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's not breeding, but you're like... But you're also like training them certain ways, right? So like, again, you you might train a certain personality uh, 10 ways and then you might just take the one branch that gets the result you want Mm -hmm. and then copy that branch. So I guess it's, it's more like selective training combined with the initial selection. It does seem like there's a relatively greater chance of M's losing their autonomy to a combination of tweaks than is maybe accounted for in the book. Like if I could just turn on and off like Adderall, like <laughs> right. at, at, like, like, at like the, a switch at like the right dose at will, whenever I needed to with no bodily negative side effects either, because you have no body. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and also, like, turn on and off, like, you know, a moderate dose of painkiller. Honestly, probably no addictive effects either, because you could prevent the kind of brain changes that cause serious long-term addiction. I would I would imagine. I'm right? going to go ahead and just assume yeah. that that's possible. Right. I, without, I mean, I'm no neuroscientist I don't or addiction specialist. But I just imagine but... you could, like, reset back to a version of your brain in, in the most brute force way. You could just reset back to before you had taken it. Well, right, but you don't want to reset in such a way that you lose memories, of course. But the point is, we have drugs now that, like, can make you more focused on your work, enjoy your work more, mm-hmm. uh, feel maybe less uh, social needs, mm-hmm. like less sexual needs, make you feel more satisfied. And if you could just kind of turn on and off those things at will, I think you can create a pretty devoted worker. So anyways, where this all goes in Scott Alexander's post is yeah. that you imagine that maybe very quickly the M's don't resemble us very much. They do just sort of seem like cogs in this M economy that are just sort of laborers and, and they, they lack some sort of humanity, right? Yeah. Well, I don't, uh, I don't know where humanity sits, so it's hard for me to imagine whether they'll lack humanity or not, but they will be different enough that the argument that they're safer than AGI starts to get weaker, basically. <laughs> Right. Well, then their primary focus becomes, you know, however their reward centers have been hijacked, you know, like, right. like, like whatever uh, end those get directed towards, right? Like, and whoever's sort of pulling those strings, that would then determine what they did and what they cared about. And right. that, that may or may not include caring about humans. Right. So, yeah, there's a bit of a safety concern there. There's also just sort of a, you know, a romantic sadness one might feel like oh this like our successors are you know they don't uh they don't fall in love or something Kids like today like you know basically. like like they've lost something that i value right they don't right, right. they don't uh they don't appreciate music or art or whatever and you know i don't know i i i find that 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 kind of concern doesn't bother me although it, it sort of seems like it bothers scott alexander in the post from what i can tell yeah i find that like a little bit viscerally upsetting when I think about it. But then when I think about it more, uh, I realize, well, there's so many differences between, you know, me and cave dwelling humans of 40,000 years ago in terms of what we enjoy. And what, and so I don't know that I necessarily care if our, uh, I mean, I'm worried about the future of humanity. So I'm worried about the robots deciding to use our atoms for something else, but, um, I'm not necessarily worried about 
uh, future robots, you know, falling in love in the same way that I do or something. I'm not sure that it's so great that it needs to be preserved. No, as long as I'm still around to fall in love in the way that I do off to the side, right. undisturbed, that's fine. Right, right, exactly. You know, there are two more criticisms that Scott Alexander makes that I sort of had in, spinning around in the back of my head when I was reading the book that I actually think need to be raised because I do agree with them, right? Okay. So one is uh, Scott Alexander actually calls the book not weird enough, which at first seems absurd because the book is extraordinarily weird. <laughs> well, there's so many different weird things about the book, including the, the way that it's presented, that it's a little hard to even wrap your mind around that. But, right. But it's what he means is that Robin, despite his presentation being a little hard to get through, has actually portrayed an interesting world that is just like a fountain of story ideas for would-be sci-fi writers like ourselves. Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, Ted, you made this point last week on the show that, like, you actually find it, you know, pretty inspiring and interesting. We talked about one plot line where, a, you know, a mother, you know, has to decide whether to scan their child. I mean, there's a million others. Right. No, I've been, like, doing almost nothing but coming up with M world plot lines in the last couple of weeks since uh, intensely going over this stuff. Right. And that's because in this future, they do, the M's essentially are described like humans. Now they're humans that are okay with copying themselves and ending, you know, after, you know, making copies of themselves that only last for a few minutes and ending and doing bizarre things that, you know, seem extremely or, or alien to a like slow motion retirement, which is almost even weirder than right. just ending. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're made into sort of human, like, characters in his book and in his description which has this it has this effect of making you imagine yourself as the m which i think is where a lot of this like revulsion actually comes from is like you put yourself in the position of like someone who's locked in a cubicle working their ass off all the time and that's not that's not my personality i wouldn't be the best person to scan into an m machine i if it happened to me it'd probably be like against my will right <laughs> Right. So, so that's why all of a sudden I'm like, ah, this is terrible because I'm not actually, I'm not imagining that I'm this other person who's okay with it. Right. So what you're kind of saying is his vision is enough like us that you can be revolted by it. You identify with it. Yeah. But, yeah. but in fact, his vision by being somewhat like us makes for a better story than one of the major alternative visions, which right. is the sort of alien. like, you know, right. Bostrom, Yudkowsky, like intelligence explosion uh, concept that, you know, we have this you know, self-improving AI that, you know, in a very short span of time completely, you know, destroys or remakes all of society. Right. Sees us the way we see ants. And that's a really dull story. Right. Because that's a story where like all of you know, humans are going about their business and then all of a sudden something happens in a lab and then all of a sudden like, you know, everything's turned into computronium or whatever. Right. Like that's, there's no interest there at all. Uh, other than maybe trying to prevent it uh, in the run-up. But like the actual unfolding of that is kind of uh, it's boring. It's totally unrelatable is the problem with it. Yeah. Right? It's just, it's a kind of apocalypse, but we don't, yeah, it's it's hard to, for us to relate to this super being. It's just like, don't worry, this is going to be best for everyone. Right. And the reason <laughs> this is worth bringing up is Robin spends so much time saying like, you know, the future shouldn't be interesting, right? Like my priorities are, the, are like sort of, you know, being consistent right. and you know, following like vetted, uh, using vetted models and theories and like seeing where, you know, those ideas lead to, you know, without being biased by what makes a good or dramatic story. Right. And yet somehow he's managed to go into much more dramatic, interesting territory. So. Well, right. I think he's unable, like, you know, he's attempting to, but is unable to completely defeat his own human centric bias. And he's, so he's imagining human-like intelligences that we can identify with. Well, he's doing it for reasons that he gives. So, I mean, it could just be a coincidence that, like, this is where his set of assumptions combined with the theory led to. It's just actually just, it just, as a, it just happened to lead to an interesting place. It could have led to an uninteresting place. Uh-huh. Um, so it could be a coincidence. Or if you want to be cynical about Robin, it could be that he was drawn to this destination because it was interesting to him and... I think there's at least some element of that. I, I mean, if you want to write a book that sticks to existing academic models and theories and tries to extrapolate wild uh, conclusions from them, 
um, this is a good way to do it. Uh, and it's also a good tactic in terms of if you want to make something, a book that's interesting to human beings, it's a good tactic to write about something that's like a human being in, in fundamental ways. Um, I, I'm not sure that either of those is the explicit reason that Robin did what he did. I'm sure he had other reasons, which he actually goes over in the book, but I, I feel like they must be there under the surface. You examine the possibilities that you can examine because you have the tools to do so, right? Why start in the place that your tools don't work? I think might be a, a simple argument for what he's done here. Right. You know, an- another thing too, like we were talking with Robin I brought up the idea of, you know, well, what happens, you know, what kind of research gains do you get when you can scan the world's best researchers, put them on these teams and run them super fast and, you know, give them access to brain scans and so on. Uh, Won't they invent the next level of intelligence extremely quickly, which sort of, again, trends towards that intelligence explosion idea? Uh, You know, won't it be even quicker than the sort of two years that Robin posits? Um given that he, he, I think he assumes that it'll be about a thousand times the average human that we can run these things, right? Right. Um, and that they'll be so cheap to produce. It just seems to me like, wow, with that much research, you know, couldn't you just get, you know, to the next level really quickly? And he is, of course, extremely skeptical of that, as he talked about. He says, you know, uh, we don't get as much out of research as we think we get. Right. And that spending more on research doesn't actually lead to more breakthroughs. Right. Now, I, I just sort of took him at his word at that. Right. And, but uh, in, in the Scott Alexander post, which we'll link to, of course, he follows up on where that research comes from. Yeah. And it ends up not looking, you know, as robust, or it seems to come from one source that applies to the field of agriculture. Right. Well, there's a couple of things going on there, too, which is that we don't, it's not really a good analog, because if you copy the world's best AI researcher or even the 10 best Mm -hmm. AI researchers in the world and have them running a thousand times. That's significantly different from if say, you know, the country of China spends more money on AI research and therefore more AI researchers work in the, because they're not the best. And there is a a difference between, you know, there's a qualitative difference between those humans. Right. If the main bottleneck is talent. Right. I mean, his main point just seemed to be that like, the study he'd seen showed that it wasn't as valuable as we thought. So if that study's not as reliable as, as we thought, then maybe there's a hole there. Um, and if what is the consequence of that? Let's talk about that. Because let's say uh, Scott Alexander's right and research is more valuable than Robin is suggesting. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, how, how does that affect the baseline scenario? The main way, right, is that um, you would expect... AGI to follow more quickly on the heels of M's. Isn't that right? Yes. I think that the M era would be shorter is right. what we're saying. And it would be overtaken more quickly, uh, which I M's think would make themselves obsolete more quickly, more quickly than otherwise. I mean, he already thinks they're going to make themselves obsolete eventually, but he thinks this is going to take, you know, maybe two human years, maybe about a, a 2000 subjective M years for the fastest running M's. Um, so maybe it's two months instead. So maybe it's two months instead of two years. I think that's a huge difference because those 2,000 uh, subjective years are plenty of time for M culture to really get different, you know, to get weird compared to where it started. Now, right. Where it started is like just the most work-friendly people in the world all kind of combined and copied many times, right? So not that different from our current world. Uh, but you would think that evolutionary press pressures would make it optimize over the course of those thousands of years. And, uh, you know, look at how different a uh, culture like Japan is from the cultures that are across the ocean from it. They had about 2,000 years of cultural isolation, and that's where it got them. That's the kind of, I would imagine, differences of that scale to be possible. Mm. Uh, but if it's only two months, then I think... M's might be less well adapted to their culture. Well, it de- depends what kind of research we're talking about, right? So if it's research into AGI, yeah, to use that term again, right? Uh, then I think uh, you know, then the M's that create the AGI might be more like us, and that might be good. If it's you know research into just improving themselves, improving the brain scans in some way. Right, right, getting inside the black box, making better tweaks. Right, then that's just escalating their change into something that's less like us. Right. 
So uh, I think it really depends on what the research focus is. And I also, I thought of another actual bottleneck. But the even, even just the M culture itself might be less different from the starting point culture just because the era lasts less No, no, long. I agree with that. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying, but if what they're doing with their research is changing their own brains, then right. that kind of goes out the window too. Right. And if what they're doing is inventing AGI, then the AGI also will be alien probably. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, either way, we end up with alien robots ruling the earth. <laughs> all, right. All roads basically go there. Right. But, you know, it, it, what we're talking about is the level of continuity. <laughs> right. Because it, right. continuity seems safer. I don't even know if that <laughs> assumption is true, but I mean, it, it seems like it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a reasonable assumption. Now, I thought of a way to defend the position that research might be slow. Okay. So the bottleneck actually might be something we talked about earlier, which is coordination, right? Okay. Because, okay. So. Well, so, okay. So you take a, a, a team of researchers, mm-hmm. right? You take the best researchers in the world. Uh, now, you want some maybe diversity in that team. So you got to choose your people carefully. That's not an easy decision. Okay. Right. Then you've got to, uh, you know, maybe you don't only want one team to copy. Maybe you want to make a few different teams, maybe a few different combinations of individuals, right? So someone's got to make those decisions. Like, what is the best combination of teams to work on this stuff? Then someone's got to decide, like, okay, this team's going to work on this task. This team's going to work on this task. How are they going to communicate? How are they going to share information? Mm-hmm. Um, there might just be a lot of management challenges. Like, yeah, you have unlimited researchers, but someone's got to direct them so that they, because, right, if you just scanned, like, if, say, yeah, if you did you can not, have unlimited directors, too. You just get the best research directors and copy them. Okay, but uh, that's a much harder, like, I don't know, you also need good what? assessment of who is good at these things, right? Like, you need to know who the best managers are and who the best researchers are. Right. And that right, may right. not be totally obvious either. That's another challenge, well, right? That, that's a challenge that we have not, yeah, that we have not uh, done too well with in our current world. Right. right. So, so I can start to see how, like, you know, actually setting up this gigantic project, I mean, it's not as simple as just, you know, copying people, right? There, There is some, I mean, if you just did that, like, just to sort of, paint a silly version of the other side if you just copied a team a thousand times then of course they're going to do the exact same thing as each other and you right don't well want yeah, obviously there wouldn't be zero coordination right. you wouldn't lock them in rooms and just you know, i'm not just let them know I'm just about like each other. showing that as the like the right, other right, extreme right, right? yeah you definitely want somebody some team uh whose job is to uh, look at the research the other teams are doing in real time and then advise them all on directions to go so that they are utilizing each other's breakthroughs and uh, not repeating each other's work uh, more than is necessary. Right. And you need some ideation, right? You need like people that you need to, you know, another thing we don't know super well is like how to stimulate uh, creativity and innovation and insight, like at the level of like, you know, like somebody realizing, oh, like this is like where I should, you know, head with this. Right. Right. Uh, like the direction I should go with this project, for example. Right. Um. So I don't know. I do think there's challenges there, um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, but the, more time yeah. spent on it does seem like the most salient way to get over. It those certainly challenges. can't hurt. It certainly can't it, hurt. I, I agree that it's complicated, but that does seem like having more time to think about it does seem like, or work on it, or or whatever does seem like the best way to solve it. It's problems. true. Like step one would be like to make the committee to figure out how to set this up, and then give them. Right, you know, fifty years to think about. That's it. right, because you can right, you can employ some of the best political thinkers uh, on a constant basis to constantly be updating how things are going, monitoring yeah. how things are going, and improving them. So I I, I do think there's uh, <laughs> it it quickly gets hard to imagine, but I do think there's a way to use the M technology at every stage of this to build a phenomenally um, productive research team that. That then right, but then you got to remember that these these uh, M's are self serving too because they're based on humans. So like the human that gets scanned is going to say, "Yeah, I'm going to be really good at this." Uh, and then like they get scanned, like like you're going to have a certain amount of people too that are just like really persuasive liars that like later we discover they're not as effective as we thought. Yeah, well, um, you think that they would just get copied less and slowly become the minority as. Yeah, yeah, I think over time. there would be metrics in this world. But there's going to be some inefficiency in the system unless sure. we have... I think what what we need is like really good ways of just judging people's abilities, right? Like right. how you say you're good at X. 
we think you're good at X. Right. Your track record shows success with X, but can we actually predict that you're going to do well at X in the future? Right, right, right. Because even, I mean, and there are things that Robin puts in the book that are sort of about how we might approach this, such as, you know, <clears throat> research into peak productivity years and things like that. Uh, but those things seem pretty crude, honestly, mm-hmm. and not able to differentiate um, the difference between somebody who's going to like do a pretty competent job at some research and somebody who's going to come up with like the brilliant breakthrough that we need to make AGI work or something like that. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, there's definitely still the, you know, age old problem of human assessment being really challenging. Uh, right. That goes right into the M era and, and probably doesn't get a whole lot easier. Uh, maybe a little easier because tracking would be a little better. But yeah, you'd have presumably um, you'd have really really good stats on the M's. So. Yeah, but still, past uh, performance does not indicate future results, right? Not always. Not always. So um, that would be still, I think, a tricky thing. I think although the, you can load the backup that did the past performance, which is a thing. nice feature. That's the thing is you just have lots and lots of variations going at once, right. and and then you know I think that's the key is massive parallelism sort of defeats all of these problems. Hopefully, yeah. If you just have enough computing power and you just run enough M's. What else do you want to talk about? So the only other things that I had were like a couple of just things that I thought were interesting in the book that um, I wished we had had time to talk about a little more. Um, One concept that's in the book that I found really just mind-blowing and inspiring uh, and like sort of story making is this idea of mind theft. Mm-hmm. So that's basically security for M's. The idea that when you're transferring uh, a mind state from one piece of hardware to another, or from one secure memory location to another, there's a danger that the mind state could be surreptitiously copied mm-hmm. and instantiated on some other hardware. Mm-hmm. And that hardware might not be under the control of that mind state. So you might be able to, torture, imprison, enslave, or otherwise mess with. Get information out of. Uh, an M, right. And one of the main reasons you might want to do that is exactly that, to get information out of them. So one uh, thing that Robin predicts I think is really cool is um, M's who get who are victims of mind theft might be presented with a false reality, kind of like in Inception or in that recent Black Mirror episode that we reviewed. Um where the false reality is designed to uh, convince them to divulge some mm-hmm. information before they realize they're in a false reality. And that's a really cool idea that that uh, blew my mind. And one thing that he mentioned is it might make M's kind of skeptical of their reality, like almost like they're Philip K. Dick characters or people who took too much acid in the sixties or something. Like they're mm-hmm. just walking around, like kind of wondering all the time, is this real? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, like that's a, uh, just for, again, like sort of putting myself in the M shoes, like identifying with the M that is very funny and bizarre to me. I really like that. Yeah. I really like that too. Uh, just it's- like that. That's like a normal feature of straight culture in their world is that you're just always a little skeptical and like, I remember, you know, in Inception, the visual thing that's so cool is like the spinning top, right? Like he spins mm-hmm. the top and if the top doesn't fall, then he knows he's still in the dream or whatever. Uh, I feel like M's would have tricks like that. You know, they'd have some weird trick that they, th- you know, that like only they know about that if that does, you know, if some weird reality thing doesn't happen in this reality, they know they're like, they're stuck somewhere. They're not, mm-hmm. in, they're not in their space. Well, and what he's done here in a way is come up with uh, a plausible way that we could get to some of these things that are already common in sci-fi. I mean, you just referenced a bunch of sci-fi sure. yeah. that no, actually I, already exists. Yeah. And so like, what's interesting is he like, you know, gave some, use some logic and some theory to actually paint why a world would be like that. Right. Would be uh, like that. And I, I, that is really cool. And another thing that I really like about it is just as somebody who likes to write science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, And I mean, Robin has this like false modesty thing where he says, Oh, you know, this isn't as exciting as space opera or something, but I totally disagree with that. To me, this is so exciting as science fiction because it is different from the things that I'm so sick of in science fiction as a fan of science fiction as somebody mm-hmm. who's, who's read and watched too much of it. Um, 
what I love about mind theft, and he says this right in it, uh, that this might be um, a serious crime, like on the level of murder and rape in the future. And that is so exciting to me because murder and rape uh, feel like such tired sources of stakes in so much science fiction. Right. And you need stakes in this virtual reality world. And you need stakes if you're going to write sci-fi. Yeah. So mind theft becomes like a new category of stakes that you can utilize to animate your stories. Right. That doesn't feel like some, you're just taking something from our world that we can already experience like murder or rape um, and that there's already significant literature about, like that right. you, you have to contend with, um, and and you can talk about a brand new, terrifying, uh, high stakes uh, event, which is you know you yourself suffer nothing, but all of your secrets are extracted by pain being caused to something that resembles you in a meaningful way, and that would terrify, I think, quite. A lot of people. Even if you're not terrified about the pain, you're going to definitely be terrified about the secrets. It also has implications for sort of the brand identity of that specific uh, personality, right? Yep. So if it's the George clan mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, one of the Georges gets stolen yep. or a copy of George gets stolen, yep. um, you know, who knows what happens to that copy? Maybe they make that copy do things that are off-brand yeah uh right right so yeah. uh it could economically harm the whole uh, brand exactly or they learn things about georges in general that they can use against other georges mm-hmm. um uh, which is i think really frightening and uh yeah i really like that idea and the, the last idea that is I, I wanted to bring up um that he talks about in the book that i think is really cool is this idea of a spur safe Right. Mm -hmm. So Spurs, we talked about this in the interview. Um, So if you listen to that, this will be review, but they're just like these short term copies that people would split off of each Mm -hmm. other uh, uh, of themselves rather to do um, a simple task. And then it either ends, which means it dies or it slows down to like an infinite retirement. Um, And that's cool. Uh, well, not actually a very quick retirement in human terms, right? Well, right, but it, it, a subjectively in yeah, yeah. retirement, right? But but that that involves you know. Well, no, I mean, if they're slowed down, right, then they're going to be closer to the speed of a human, if not even maybe even slower, slower, yeah. right, right, yeah. So um, so it would, I guess, yeah. Their subjective experience of it might be only a few minutes, but it might last years and years, kind yeah. of thing, right? Um, so. At any rate, uh, these spurs, one thing they might be used for is a new kind of sort of security protocol where, uh, let's say you want to do a business dealing with me Mm -hmm. and we want to agree to a price for something. You're selling me something and we want to agree to a price. There's a lot of information that both of us could share that would lead us to be getting the most optimal price, but there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to share that information because there's many other things going on in both of our worlds, right? So what we decide to do is we each split off a spur. Right, I remember this. And we this. put okay. them into a spur safe, which is like a null room, like our concept of a null room. It's, in a, it's a place where nobody can see in or out and nothing's recorded. And the two spurs, the John spur and the Ted spur, lay all of their cards on the table inside the room. They tell each other the complete truth and they negotiate the best possible price. That's the perfect, you know, uh, halfway point between what you want and what I want. And we, we get the number. Then the safe returns reports the number and destroys the spurs. So no memory exists of you knowing all my secrets or me knowing all of yours, but both of us receive the, the couple of bits of output from the safe that says, you know, yes or no on the question or the price is this number or something simple right. like so, that. So a, a, a example situation might be like if I, I said to you, mm-hmm. I have a useful fact for your business right. that would really help you. Right. If selling information is a great example. But I'm not going to tell it to you right. unless you pay me. And you're like, well, you say it's a useful fact that right. you're going to tell me. 
but is it really? And right. this would allow a copy of you to investigate whether or not it is in fact worth paying for. So all I say to my guy is tell me whether it's worth it or not. And all that the safe reports is yes or no, which is the last thing my spur did before it disappeared. Mm-hmm. Right. So if it says yes, then I pay you and I find out what it is. If it says no, then I say, yeah, we're, we're good. Um, and that's a perfect example. That is like a really, really exciting idea. Again, just like from the point of view of a cool story, um, because you could, there's two ways to make that a cool story. There's the cool story that happens outside the safe. Mm-hmm. And then there's the cool story that happens inside the safe, right? Which is, right. you you know, as a spur, you're only going to get like, let's say it's yes or no. That's all you can reply. Mm-hmm. That's your last words to go out into the world and affect your your other m's that are like you are yes or no and then all this complexity can happen inside the safe mm-hmm. of you know you can try to manipulate each other the other m could be trying to tell you it doesn't actually you know what do you care what those other guys are doing since you're just going to end right now and you're not going to have any knowledge of this anyway and you know you could really try to manipulate one another into uh, doing the outcome you want. Um, uh, and then eventually you, you, you make the choice, you press the button and, and you end. Uh, and maybe you find out something that's complex. And because it's complex, a simple yes or no no longer feels adequate to your answer, but mm-hmm. you have no ability to express that. So Right, you can't say no, but... Right, so then you have to kind of figure out a way to encode some extra information in what you say somehow, which maybe you can do and maybe you can't. So it requires... Just- you have to think, like, if I were me, which I am... Which I am. What, what would uh, right. I... How would I, like, interpret a no here? Right, exactly. Would I interpret that as an absolute no, or would I interpret that as a continue to follow up, or... Right, right, right. as I want to say yes, but there's a big caveat kind of thing or something. So... That's really, really fascinating to me, and I really like imagining the world inside the safe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That was like one of the inspiring things. That yeah, I, I remember those book. things. Uh, I'm glad you reminded me of them because, yeah, I mean, that's just those are just two great examples of of how rich the book is. So, I know uh, the book is actually full of this stuff. Those are just two that yeah. stuck in my mind. But if you are somebody who's looking for inspiration, you're the uh, for like sci-fi stories. You're the person I most recommend this book to. And if you are somebody who like is a fan of overcoming bias. Obviously you should read it. Um, but if you want to think overcoming about overcoming bias, Robin's blog, the blog, not, not the, the blog, activity, the blog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The activity appears to be impossible, right? I think that's the joke of the name. Um, but, uh, I, you know, for everybody else, I'd say, you know, this is a book that is dense and difficult, but rewarding. So if you like that kind of thing, definitely do it. Um, but if you, all right, so we're going to wrap up this Express episode because we've talked for a long time now. Yep. Uh, so let us know what you think of this. Yeah, write uh, in to us on Twitter, RTF underscore podcast, or uh, send us an email, feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Uh, future episodes will probably be more like variety shows, have some more uh, different topics. Uh, so, But we'll, we'll just have to experiment and see how it goes. Right. We're going to be testing this format out so we want to hear from you about like what's working what isn't and um thanks again for uh sticking with us during our months of hiatus we are back now for the foreseeable future yes we really really appreciate all of you thank you uh until next time i'm ted cupper i'm john perry and you've been listening to review the future To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.